Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us, letting us be part of your day as we wrap up what's been a busy week, and we have a busy program for you today. We are going to talk about the antibiotic uh, issue for the livestock industry, the pork industry in particular. We'll talk with the Director of Producer and Public Health for the National Pork Board. We're going to take a look at the cattle market. We're going to have some uh, analysis and outlook for the cattle market with Kevin Good with Cattle Facts, and we're going to take a look at that a bill that would uh, provide some ag labor reform, some things in it uh, that have some concern, like with E-Verify, but the others are saying there's a lot of uh, improvements in this bill. We'll talk with Chuck Connor, president of the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives, about that a little bit later on in the program. Quick reminder, coming up on Monday, we're going to draw two names for free registrations to the DTN Ag Summit coming up December 9th, 10th, and 11th in Chicago. Great lineup of speakers. We'll talk more about it on Monday. I'll be broadcasting from there on Tuesday, December 10th. All you have to do is go to our website, AmericanAgNetwork.com. Click on Adams on Agriculture. You'll see where you can send in your information. And then we'll draw two names on Monday and have two winners for free registration to that DTN Ag Summit next month in Chicago. So if you're interested, be sure to get to, to the website and get your name in there right away. Well, joining us now on Adams on Agriculture is John Newton, Chief Economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation. Each year, Farm Bureau conducts its annual survey of classic Turkey Day items. And John, thank you for joining us. What did your survey find this year as far as the average cost of the Thanksgiving Day meal? Hey, happy happy to be on. You know, this year uh, we we got so much, so many responses from many of our state Farm Bureau, the volunteer shoppers around the country. We had over 250 responses from 38 states, uh, and the survey results showed that the average price of a Thanksgiving dinner for 10 came in at $48.91. That's one penny uh, more than what we saw last year, and I think the the prize of the dinner table, the turkey, uh, our, our survey showed a 16-pound turkey at $20.80, uh, down about 4% from last year at $1.30 per pound. So really, uh, Thanksgiving dinner continues to, to be very, very affordable uh, for Americans. Now, what's on that survey shopping list other than turkey? Well, we've got the turkey, all the fixings. So if you're going to have some homemade stuffing, make the cranberry sauce. We've got sweet potatoes, pumpkin pie. You can make two pumpkin pies. Uh, we've got the ham, the mashed potatoes, and the green beans. Uh, we We added ham, mashed potatoes, and green beans last year because 50% uh, of, of people around the country have a ham on Thanksgiving in addition to the turkey. When you add the ham to the to the cost of Thanksgiving dinner, it's about $62, uh, up $0.60 cents or, or just slightly higher from what we saw last year. Uh, so a few items, the price went up some, uh, but overall it, it stayed pretty stable. Yeah, I mean, we, we've seen stable prices, you know, across... Uh, the food retail channel for a number of years. The you know CPI for food consumed at home, the inflation level has been uh, very very flat. And and you know the the big takeaway from that for us is, you know we're pointing out folks need to understand that, that on average the farmer only gets about eight percent of the dollar that U.S. consumers spend on food. And I don't think a lot of Americans, matter of fact, eighty eight percent of Americans uh, in our survey didn't even know that. Yeah, that's a that's. 
a very important factor that a lot of people don't know about and don't understand about the uh, when they buy those groceries, where that money is actually going. We're talking with John Newton, chief economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation. John, in your Farm Bureau survey, you also ask uh, Americans about a few other things concerning food and, and their views on food. Uh, we certainly do. We ask just to get the, the, the perception of, of what consumers, uh, how consumers feel about farmer. And I believe we had 88% of the survey respondents indicated that they have a high level of trust uh, in farmers and ranchers across the country. Uh, we had a lot of survey respondents that, that wanted to learn more uh, about where their food comes from. And, and this is really an expansion of our Thanksgiving survey. We, we wanted to really understand how people celebrate it and what their views are uh, around the country. So what are they saying? Uh, what What's the biggest surprise or takeaway, you think, from those kind of questions that you're asking consumers? I think the, the biggest surprise, to me anyway, is that, that consumers really don't have any understanding uh, how much of, of what they spend on food goes back to the farmer. Uh, when you look at the, the percent of our disposable income that we spend on food here in the United States, it's, it's around 5 to 6 percent. Uh, so Americans have access to, to very affordable food, uh, and that allows them then to, to go out and, and get things, you know, uh, maybe they want an organic turkey or maybe they want to get some additional uh, food items on Thanksgiving, they can do all that without spending a whole lot more money. Uh, and we, I don't think we've ever understood what it's like to be food insecure as a nation, and that's because we have a very, very affordable food supply, and I think we need to thank the farmers and ranchers. You know, less than 2% of the population produce all the food that we ultimately eat. So the survey shows 88% of Americans trust farmers and how they grow their food. That's, that's right. Uh, a high trust level with farmers. There is some uh, need or, you know, from the survey responses, people do want to know more about their food. Uh, they want to know more about modern agriculture. But, but the big takeaway, they do trust their farmers. Now, Farm Bureau has been doing the survey since 1986, and you, you stick pretty much to the same menu, right? So you have some consistency to, for comparison. Yeah, we you know next year is our 35th year, and and the menu has been uh, very you know consistent for for 33 of those 34 years. Last year we did add uh, the ham, the the mashed potatoes, and green beans, and and you know those are items that that people have uh, on their Thanksgiving dinner. I think the other item that uh, our survey showed that people have on Thanksgiving that we're not capturing the price of, uh, and our dairy farmers will love it is, is mac and cheese. Uh, a lot of folks have mac and cheese on Thanksgiving. And so we're going to revisit and maybe think about, you know, is there an opportunity to add mac and cheese next year uh, because it has become such a staple on that Thanksgiving meal. So you have volunteer shoppers in several states uh, that participate in your survey. Yeah, we had volunteer shoppers uh, from 38 states, over 250 shoppers. Uh, you know, that, that, that's a, a big expansion from what we had last year. And we really just engaged with our state farm bureaus uh, it, it was really them that, that helped get so many survey responses uh, around the country. We had a lot of responses from, you know, Wisconsin, Minnesota, uh, Arkansas. And so those state farm bureaus really engaged uh, with those volunteer shoppers to make sure we get uh, robust results this year. And you haven't looked for the best possible prices without using discounts or coupons, right? That's right. So we, we want folks to, to look at the prices uh, without without the promotion, without the buy one, get one free, without a free turkey if you spend $100, we want to know what it's going to cost uh, to prepare that Thanksgiving dinner. And 
and it, you know for example on the turkey a uh, dollar 30 per pound that's down slightly from last year uh the turkey prices are down despite wholesale prices for turkey moving up uh, and stock levels on turkeys, you know, according to USDA data, moving down. So uh, I think stores really do use the turkey to, to get people in the door. All right. John Newton, Chief Economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation. Thanks, John. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, happy holidays to you too, Mike. Thank you. All right. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. The sounds of success vary from person to person. Over to second, in time, on the first, double play. Success sounds like this to a Credenz soybean grower. When you pick Credenz, you get a precise variety that fits your field. A variety built to work in your soil type and conditions with targeted traits for local pest and disease pressures. Earning the satisfaction of a successful soybean crop, that's smart. Talk to your authorized Credenz retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, this is U.S. Antibiotic Awareness Week and World Antibiotic Awareness Week. And I want to talk about antibiotic stewardship in the pork industry. Joining us now is Heather Fowler, Director of Producer and Public Health for the National Pork Board. Heather, thank you for joining us. I know this is an issue that uh, uh, many are concerned about and, and probably not fully educated on. We're not aware completely. We hear about the use of antibiotics. We hear uh, claims of overuse of antibiotics. We, are, we hear concerns about antibiotic resistance. Uh, when it comes to antibiotic stewardship, in in pork production in our country tell us how the pork industry is handling this yeah so um as you mentioned with antibiotic awareness week it really is a collaborative effort between the cdc state organizations allied industry to really highlight what we're doing um, to achieve this end of improving overall stewardship and within the swine industry we have our flagship program the pqa plus program which provides specific instruction on how producers can use antibiotics responsibly. And again, I would say this is something that our producers are doing every single day. How do we achieve that balance of using antibiotics for the health of, of, of animals, but not overusing it and creating resistance issues and things like that? Well, another thing that we do at the National Pork Board is we are constantly looking for innovative ways that can help to assure that, as you said, that well, you can use antibiotics when needed in animal agriculture, but also protect its use um, in, in people. So we have um, funded a number of different research projects way back in the, the 90s. We started that program. Um, in the past few years, we've put $3 million towards that effort. This past year, almost a half a million um, so we're really continuing to research this topic, and, you know, we, we never get complacent with it. So through research, through exploration, I think we'll continue to, and then con- continued improvement um, around antimicrobial stewardship, we'll continue to explore different opportunities um, as it relates to this really complex um, topic. In fact, the pork industry is partnering with several other groups, right, and companies to deal with uh, and address this issue? 
Yes. So, um, for instance, as it relates to our research, we recently partnered with the Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research, or FFAR, um, and joined their international consortium for antimicrobial stewardship in agriculture. So it's FRICASA, and I apologize for that alphabet soup. Um, but it's a great way for us to leverage our existing research dollars, partner with other organizations such as McDonald's, JBS, Tyson, that are also members of that organization to, again, fund research to help explore whether it's antibiotic alternatives, improve diagnostics, et cetera. Um, so we're really, uh, really trying to um, address this issue by partnering with other groups. Um, we've also worked with the CDC. We've brought um, public health officials from the CDC and other organizations out on the farm so we could show them what pig farmers are doing every single day, but also have an honest conversation around antibiotic use, again, with that idea of continuous improvement in mind. We know we can't do this alone. We know we need to partner with um, colleagues in other areas and other sectors, um, and we're definitely committed to doing that because that is what's right for people, pigs, and the planet. We're talking with Heather Fowler, Director of Producer and Public Health for the National Pork Board. Tell us more about that uh, that farm tour where you brought uh, public health officials out to uh, pork production facilities. So, yeah, sure. We've done farm tours in the past, um, but for different groups. And so this was the first time we brought public health officials out on the farm to see firsthand how pig farmers are using antibiotics responsibly every day. Um, it was a day-and-a-half tour. We um, first kind of briefed them on the basics of pork production, explained what they'll see, the difference between a sow and a gilt, those types of things. Took them out on a farm. We went from a, a farrowing site all the way to a finishing site. Um, and then even just sat down and had conversation around what they saw, what questions they had, their thoughts about um, use in agriculture. And, again, some of those tough conversations came out. What can pig farmers do um, to improve the overall um, perception of animal agriculture and that use? We had really, really good conversations. And as a result, I think it's something that will continue into um, 2020 and future years. There seems to be a... a a perception by some that there's rampant overuse of antibiotics uh, by pork producers. Uh, how, how do you respond to that and those concerns that have been raised? Yeah, and I, again, I think it goes back to Antibiotic Awareness Week, of really taking this opportunity to share the story, um, the pig farmer's story in this case. Um, so engaging in these activities, engaging in activities year-round, um, another program I should mention is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC, has an antimicrobial resistance challenge, which is a year-long event where they challenge um, participants to really um, improve stewardship and share that story. So we've been involved in that activity as well, and it allows us to um, or it really forces us to brainstorm about other things we can do to get that honest message out. Because like you said, there are a lot of misconceptions about how we use antibiotics in agriculture, and it's all about getting to the right people, sharing that message, using all different forms of media to get that message out. So this radio um, spot definitely helps. So thanks again for having me on. Uh, my pleasure, because I, it's a serious issue, and I know that there are some very real concerns out there, and we need more um, information, more education, more awareness of what's going on. I think a lot of it comes down to that producer-veterinarian relationship, too, doesn't it? 
Yes, definitely. And that's another part of the story we need to tell. Every time our producers are using antibiotics, there's a veterinarian involved. We have what we call a veterinarian-client-patient relationship. So all of those pieces are in place to use antibiotics and to use them responsibly. Heather, what uh, what do you say to people that have real concerns about uh, uh, antibiotic resistance and and health concerns, and therefore it, it impacts and influences their uh, buying decisions when it comes to a, a product like pork? Uh, how do you reassure them? What do you say to them? I remind them that America's pig farmers are committed to producing a safe, nutritious, delicious product that was produced in a way that protects animal health, animal welfare, as well as public health. At the end of the day, um, we are at the service of our consumers, and we want to produce a product that they can stand behind. And um, as a result, that, that is really what drives us. And it goes back to in the swine industry, we have our We Care Ethical Principles that is really what our producers live and breathe every single day. So rest assured, we are really in it for people, pigs, and planet, and we are trying to do the right thing for all of those um, areas every single day. And I'm try- I'm, I don't want to minimize people's concerns, and, and the issue of resistance is a real one. We see uh, yep. you know, that that is something that has to be addressed. Uh, but I do find it interesting, though, in a society that's so heavily reliant and dependent, it seems like, and willing to use antibiotics in human care, there seems to be some who think we should not use them at all in, in animal care. So that brings up a great point. And um, earlier this month on November 3rd, it was One Health Day. And oftentimes on One Health Day, and for those that aren't familiar, One Health refers to a train of thought or a research approach where you look at human health, animal health, and environmental health all at the same time because there's an understanding that they're intertwined so much so that you can't look at them in isolation. And so antimicrobial resistance is an example of a one health issue. We use it in humans, we use it in animals, and we use it in the environment as well. And so you can't just focus on one area or one sector. And in the swine industry and animal health, we... um, we understand and we believe in um, antimicrobial resistance is a public health issue. We acknowledge that, but we're also part of the solution, and we work collaboratively with colleagues across those sectors of that One Health framework. So, again, in human health and environmental health to make sure that we're doing what's right um, to improve or, in this case, reduce the trend of antimicrobial resistance. So, again, when people focus on one sector, they start to finger point. I say, no, you know, it's inappropriate in this case given how we use antimicrobials. It really is a team effort um, that's going to get us out of this. So we need to look at all of those different pieces and not just focus in on one. All right, important topic, and I want to let people know that this is being addressed, uh, seriously addressed by the uh, pork industry. Our guest has been Heather Fowler, Director of Producer and Public Health for the National Pork Board. Heather, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. All right, stay with us. Much more to come here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture.
Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. For livestock at the American Lean Hog Futures, we've got a mix as cattle futures back pedal. China says it hopes to restore most of its pork supply in roughly a year as worries about African swine fever continue to hurt the industry. The number of breeding sows in China edging up six-tenths of a percent in October from a month earlier, rising for the first time since April last year, according to an official with China's Agriculture and Rural Affairs Ministry. Chinese President Xi Jinping saying on Friday that Beijing wants to work for a trade deal with the U.S. but is not afraid to fight back to protect its own interests, echoing an upbeat tone adopted by other Chinese officials in recent days. Xi telling a visiting U.S. business delegation that China holds a positive attitude toward the trade talks. In lean hog futures, December up 25 cents an hour into the day at 60.90. Live cattle December down 15 at 119.17. We'll have a cattle on feed report coming out from USDA later on on this Friday. January feeder cattle down $2.07 at 140.55. For the grain and oil seed sector, fractional changes seen in corn and soybeans. January soybeans steady at 9.01, March down a quarter of a cent at 9.15, March corn steady at 3.79. Chicago wheat March up five and three quarters at 5.17 and three quarters. Kansas City March up five and a quarter at 4.33 and three quarters. Minneapolis spring wheat March contract up three quarters of a cent at 5.10 a bushel. On Wall Street, the Dow is up 91, S&P up 5, crude down 24. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Some measure success by Italian suits, corner offices, and luxury yachts. Farmers measure success differently. It's breathing fresh country air, taking care of the people you love, and knowing how to measure success in your soybean acres. That's smart. With Credenz Soybeans, you get a precise variety bred to fit your acres. And that Credenz variety comes with agronomic expertise and local insights from your BASF team. So plant your sign of success. Talk to your authorized Credenz retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, we do a lot of um, market outlook here on Adams on Agriculture, and we talk a lot about corn and soybeans and, and even uh, the pork production and the pork market. But as my producer, uh, Kirsten Rawl, rightfully pointed out, we needed to focus some on the cattle market. So we're going to do that today, and very happy to have with us Kevin Good, Cattle Facts Senior Market Analyst. Kevin, thanks for joining us here on Adams on Agriculture. Mike's good to be with you today. Lots going on, a lot of factors uh, impacting the, the cattle market. And I guess almost everything we talk about comes back in some way or form to uh, China. And because of the African swine fever situation and uh, what's happened there and the, the loss of hogs there, and we know the, the protein demand there is strong, we've talked a lot about how it's not just going to be uh, pork that will fill that hole that's been created there, but other forms of protein such as beef. How big of an opportunity do you see that for uh, beef producers here in the U.S.? How could that impact the cattle market moving forward? Yeah, yeah Mike, actually, it's already, already been beneficial to the cattle producer here over the last few months, and it's kind of a roundabout way that uh, you wouldn't think of, and, and it, it comes with a 90% trim, 
and the fact that Australia is sending the vast majority of their product into China right now in the front door, and because of that, prices are, have skyrocketed in Australia. Their trim, 90% trim, is the product that they typically would be sending to the U.S. Well, that product laid into the U.S. is about 30 to 40 cents a pound higher than our domestic product, so therefore that product's heading somewhere else globally and not into the U.S., which is supporting our trim prices substantially above a year-ago levels and actually supported the whole cutout. So, you know, it's one of those things you might not think of. It's, it's uh, as we think about going into 2020, we're fairly optimistic. We know that we'll get a lot of pork product into the, the Chinese market. They've already bought a lot of product and shipping a lot of product. Uh, they just We just came to an agreement on poultry. We should get quite a bit of poultry product into China. You know, on the beef side, one way or the other, front door, back door, or just filling other voids around the, the globe, uh, we're optimistic that we'll see beef exports increase next year as well. You know, that's a good point that often, I think, gets overlooked. The headlines will talk about pork or maybe poultry. But when these things occur, like at the African swine fever outbreak, uh, it creates kind of a, a ripple effect, a domino effect, doesn't it, uh, around the world and through different commodities? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, all, all in, in China in particular, you know, all three proteins, beef, pork, and poultry, prices have escalated. And as they do that, we're just going to draw more product of all three species into the Chinese market, which opens up, uh, you know, other opportunities for the U.S. We have talked with folks with the U.S. Meat Export Federation, and it seems like even with all the trade issues and challenges of this past year, we have seen pretty strong meat exports, haven't we? We we have. We've been just a little bit disappointed. You know, year over year, there are increases for pork and poultry. Uh, for beef, we're a little bit disappointed. Two 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 spots there that have been a little bit of disappointment this year. One is into Japan. Finally, we've got a an agreement with the Japanese where our tariffs will be comparable to the Australians and the Canadians. And so as we go into 2020, we're optimistic we'll get more market share back. And in particular, the Aussie product, more of it's going into China and less of it into Japan. Uh, so we do feel like we'll have some year-over-year gains there. And also this past year, we've been below a year ago going into Hong Kong. And obviously with the trade issues uh, with China, that's that uh, the gray market there has been uh, a little tough to get through. And so with that said, we're optimistic into the greater China area. Uh, we'll see some gains as we go into 2020. We're talking with Kevin Good, Senior Market Analyst for Cattlefax. What about the domestic market, uh, Kevin? What are we seeing with demand? Uh, we've got now a lot of attention being fa- uh, placed on uh, these new cell and plant-based products coming into the marketplace. What are we seeing about domestic demand? You know, domestic beef demand is, is exceptional. Uh, there's no other way to put it as we look at it. Uh, you know, just across the board, we're setting in here, and, and there's more dollars coming into the beef industry year over year. That dollar amount is going to be about a 3% increase this year compared to last year, and it's a combination of higher retail prices and actually on a per capita basis just a little bit more beef per capita. So increasing supply, higher prices, more dollars, that's a definition of strong demand. What we see there is, you know, as you think about the U.S. economy, it's, you know, pretty basically full full employment. It's uh, wages finally going up faster than the rate of inflation. 
And so there's more dollars to be spent. And, and frankly, as we look at the long-term trends, uh, beef has gained market share as we talk about the dollars being spent by the consumer compared to both pork and poultry. So there's a preference there as, as far as the product. Uh, we would say in the beef industry we've got a better product than we've had 10, 20, 30 years ago. And, you know, the way cattle are grading, choice and prime compared to where they were 10 or 20 years ago and more consistent product, I think those are true statements. And historically, you mentioned the economy. We've seen a, a connection between a good economy and, and strong beef sales domestically, right? Absolutely. It, you just You can go back and... Really, if you think about beef values and, and the dollars spent, uh, high, highly correlated to a strong economy. And, and in particular, as you start thinking about some of the choice and above middle meats, you know, fine dining, there is a correlation there with a the strong economy and strong stock market. But consumer comfort uh, index, you know, the consumer sentiment right now is as stout as it's been in the last 20 years. So it's it's across the board we're seeing if you just look at the value or the price of hamburger compared to let's say on, on chicken let's talk about the the, the breast and on the, the pork let's talk about the loin you know that ratio beef has gained in fact if you went back and looked 15 years ago at retail hamburger would have sold at a discount the chicken breast and the pork loin today it's selling at a substantial premium to both those cuts so that tells you that the consumer does have a preference and you know, for the product, for our product in the beef industry. I mentioned the cell and plant-based products. They get a lot of publicity and attention, and I think there's a curiosity factor, and, and, and yeah. some uh, will will uh, give them a try. Some will stick with them. I think some will not. There's a lot to be played out here as far as price and other aspects. But uh, I haven't seen any uh, any uh, shorter lines at all to get into the steakhouses. They still seem pretty full to me. I, what, what impact do you see this having on uh, the beef industry? Well, we'll break it in two two questions there. The, the cell-based, the petri dish product, uh, we, we really don't see that as, as competition anytime soon uh, from a from a price point and also just a, a public perception. I think they, that's a real challenge. That product will have a real challenge coming into the marketplace. The plant-based protein, we would see that as, as a more of a, a headwinds in here short-term. Uh, a lot of folks are going to try it. Uh, some of the initial data would suggest that market share is still very small, very much maybe a half a percent, a percent at the most. So it's very small from a market share standpoint. And typically it's not cannibalizing beef consumption. It's folks that are trying it uh, that normally wouldn't be big beef users or even if beef users are trying the other alternative proteins, uh, they're not doing it in a, in, a, in a big way as far as number of experiences. So uh, we obviously recognize that it, that it is a challenge. Uh, it probably will gain some market share over time. But at the same time, uh, we need to recognize we do have a superior product. To, if we're going to talk about a healthy product, there's, there's no comparison. Uh, that beef is much, much healthier from a, uh, from a dietary standpoint than the uh, so-called plant-based protein that's basically a, a mix of a number of products, uh, both natural and, and maybe otherwise, uh, that uh, uh, I think uh, once, once uh, the consumer really knows what they're consuming on that side, probably not going to be as much acceptance as we might think. All right, Kevin, what's your uh, price outlook? What's your cattle market outlook? 
you know, as we think about this year, and, you know, in the rearview mirror, we've sat in here, and, you know, for the year, we're going to average about 116 for fed cattle, and, you know, the calf market's going to average about 163, 164. I'm talking about a five and a half weight steer calf U.S. average, and on a yearling seven and a half weight steer, we're going to average about 143, 144. As we go into 2020, we're going to be just a little bit more optimistic in that. I think we can put a couple of dollars on all classes of cattle, uh, and the main reason we would suggest that is we do think we'll have more access to the global global uh, markets. We think we will export more product. We think that we will import less product, in particular from Australia and New Zealand because of the 90 trim and the Chinese factor. Uh, interesting enough, you know, we, we, even though we're going to talk the market a little bit higher next year, we still have increasing supplies of per capita beef and beef, pork, and poultry all rolled together. Uh, so uh, we do see the African swine fever issue as constructive as far as raising global protein prices, and we're going to get a piece of that pie. But let's also remember that we're producing a lot more product domestically. Uh, we're still expanding pork and poultry. Uh, we're in the process of, we think, leveling out beef production over the next couple of years after six years of expansion. But there's still going to be plenty of protein on the market. All right, Kevin, good to talk with you. Thank you very much. We look forward to having you back on with us. Sounds good, Mike. Have a good day. Take care. Kevin Good, Senior Market Analyst for Cattle Facts. All right, again, a reminder that uh, if you want a chance to win a free registration to the DTN Ag Summit next month in Chicago, go to our website, AmericanAgNetwork.com. Click on Adams on Agriculture. Get your information in. We'll draw two names on Monday. Coming up next, an ag labor reform bill. What's in it? Why are some still concerned about it? Is it causing a split in Congress? Will it get enough support to move forward? We'll talk with the president of the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives about that next on AOA. The sounds of success vary from person to person. Success sounds like this to a credenced soybean grower. Along with 43 new varieties this year, Credence Soybeans come with agronomic expertise from BASF. That means expert advisors who bring local insights on seed selection, management decisions, and crop protection options. Knowing the kind of success you're shooting for? That's smart. Talk to your authorized Credence retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. All right, so a few days ago, the House Judiciary Committee approved the Farm Workforce Modernization Act on a voice vote, but then Republicans requested a recorded vote, and then on a party-line vote, the committee advanced the bill 18 to 12. We've talked about this having some bipartisan support, but there's also some opposition to it as well. Let's talk about it with Chuck Conner, president of the National Council of farmer cooperatives. Chuck, good to have you back on with us. First of all, your thoughts on this bill. Uh, is it good for agriculture, you think? Mike, we think it's a, a very good bill for agriculture, and we're, we're so thankful the House is uh, taking up this uh, issue uh, here around the holiday time period. Uh, this bill does go a long way toward correcting the two fundamental problems that we've had in American agriculture relative to labor. You know, we've got an existing workforce that has documentation problems, this bill would fix that by giving them legal status. It also offers great improvement to our guest worker program. 
program, the H-2A program, including limits on how much more farmers will have to pay each year for labor. That's so important during these times when commodity prices are not increasing. We, we can't add to our labor cost during times when, when the returns just don't show it. This bill addresses both of those. I have said and, and have applauded those pushing this because I think it addresses an area that needs to be addressed. Uh, and even though we, it doesn't fix the whole immigration issue, let's focus on an area that can be uh, improved and, and fixed, perhaps, or at least improved on, and, and do that. Don't, uh, you know, we've had a lot of not do anything because we can't do everything. I, I like the approach, but uh, some that are critical of it have used the A word, amnesty, which always usually kind of stops all this in its tracks. Some say this bill opens the door to a massive amnesty. What do you think? Well, uh, Mike, I just, you know, it's so frustrating to hear that kind of conversation. We have workers on our farms and ranches today that for the most part came legally. They overstayed, you know, the length of their time period. But in many, many cases, you know, they have been working on our farms and ranches for years. Uh, you know, harvesting the food, milking the cows, doing all this kind of work so that Americans, you know, can, can live quite comfortably. This bill does not give them um, voting rights or anything of the kind. It gives them legal status to remain in this country. And again, they've been here a long time to remain in this country if they agree to stay in agricultural work for an extended period of time. You know, this is what we need. We cannot Mike, produce the food and fiber and the milk and the meat that we do for this country at the prices that we do it for without these workers. And those who say get rid of them, send them away, are basically committing what is now American agriculture to be agriculture somewhere else in the world. And that's just not right. Most ag groups have uh, have come out in favor of the bill, but Farm Bureau did not because they have concerns with the e-verify system and that portion of the bill. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? Well, we're working very, very closely with American Farm Bureau. Uh, Mike and and, uh, Zippy Duvall has been closely involved with this. Um, You know, I I share a lot of Farm Bureau's concerns on this. You know, we need to move a bill through a, a difficult process here. There's going to be many opportunities to improve this bill for agriculture uh, down the road, and I think Farm Bureau recognizes that, and we really look forward to the Ag Workforce Coalition, which I chair, to, to work with Zippy Duvall and the Farm Bureau to, to get a bill that is right. Um, all of us are concerned about E-Verify uh, if there's no uh, change in the current law, because we know we've got verification problems. We don't need a complicated government system to tell us that, but let us give us the tools to fix the problem and then we can talk about E-Verify, and I think that there's not that much difference between where we are, this bill is and Farm Bureau on that point. I think that's a critical issue, Chuck. Uh, no one's saying this bill is perfect, but rather than just scrap it and say we don't like it and, and not get anything done, let's use it as a, as a starting point to make the improvements that are needed and where it needs to be adjusted and tweaked to improved upon, do that rather than throw the whole thing out. We've got to, Mike, because I, I, we cannot live under the status quo any longer. Under our guest worker program, you know, we've been seeing double-digit, in some cases, 24 26% increases per year in the minimum labor rates for our guest workers. 
there is not enough money in American agriculture to pay those kind of increases, which we have under current law if we do nothing. We've got to do something. And I think this bill is a great start toward that process of getting something done. Given the political climate, though, in Washington, D.C., what do you think are the chances of pushing this through? Look, any legislation in Washington, D.C. right now is an uphill lift. It doesn't matter whether, uh, you know, it has almost unanimous support. It's very, very difficult to get through. So we recognize that. We're trying not to put false hope out there in farm country. But this is still our best opportunity in a long time, Mike. And as you've heard me say on your program many, many times, when farmers are together needing something, generally speaking, Congress is always anxious to help farmers. Everybody appreciates, everybody eats, they appreciate what farmers do for them. When they're in trouble, as we are now in this labor crisis situation, uh, we are able to overcome a lot of obstacles, and, and I hope that this is one of them, and, and get this bill done despite the uh, headwinds that we face in the legislative process. I think a lot of people still don't understand or realize there is a labor crisis in agriculture. Well, you, um, farmers certainly do, Mike, and, and I think you know that's part of our job is to educate them, uh, educate them to the fact that uh, you know there's uh, product uh, being left in the field right now because there's nobody to harvest it. You know who wins in that circumstance? Uh, just the fact that uh, at a time when commodity prices are at best flat and in some cases still declining a little bit, how the government is requiring 20, 25 percent increases in labor rates. I mean that that no one you know thinks that's a good idea. So I think we've got a chance here. All right, Chuck. Good to talk with you again. We'll keep a close watch on this, the Farm right. Workforce and Modernization Act. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Chuck Connor, President, National Council of Farmer Cooperatives. With that, we wrap it up for today and for the week. Have a great weekend, everyone. Hope you'll join us again on Monday here on Adams on Agriculture. Mr. Chairman, as a corn root, I speak for millions of my kind who can't be here to defend themselves. Pests are stalking our stocks and undermining our roots. But we can elect to protect with a legacy of strength. Poncho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment system increases nearby microbial activity to help us grow stronger. That's smart. Ladies and gentlemen, please, this is a corn roots movement. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Poncho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment. Always read and follow label directions.